So I'm not going to give you the long, like, hey, I'm back. Uh, Pastor Scott's not in here, so I'm going to ask him if I can do that after service. Just go up and give everyone the most recent update um, to save myself a little trouble and just to get everyone at the same time. That way you all know what's going on. But um, I'll just say that, that uh, uh, I, I'm, I'm well enough to be back. And the cardiologist says you need to go about your regular schedule and just no limitations other than what you know your body says don't do. And so um, actually was able to go with Joshua to the father-son retreat this past weekend and uh, took it easy. I had people who were there making sure, like CJ, was saying, you better not do this, you better not do that, you better not do this. And uh, I didn't. I took it easy. But uh, I, I certainly knew that... Um, after being pretty much uh, just lying down or sitting down for three weeks that my body was telling me just take it easy so I'll give you the updates though uh, after service but um, uh, everything is going well I think better than certainly the doctors expected which is a testimony to God's power and his mercy and grace um, but anyhow I'm, I'm here this morning and we're gonna get back into first Peter and I know JB was just mentioning, he's like, wow, First Peter, okay, he was reading First Peter recently. While I was in the hospital and then home, I was thinking about coming back and then thinking of First Peter and thought, well, um, the, the trials that Peter talks about uh, here as he's addressing his brethren, uh, we can look at the text and see it's, it's spiritual, but certainly the principles would apply uh, with any trials that you're experiencing, uh, having the right mindset of the eternal and the temporal. Uh, and so this has really just been ministering to me quite a bit over the past uh, almost a month now uh, since we've been uh, gone and I've been um, recovering. And so we're going to get back into it this morning, First Peter 1.6, so hopefully you've got your hand out there. Uh, let me open in a word of prayer, and then we're going to look at verses 1 through 9. I'm just going to read that again to get us um, caught up to speed, since it's been a few months since we've been in First Peter. But uh, we'll look at verse 6 today uh, as we take a look at um, joy amid distress. Um, Father, we come before you, and we thank you so much for this morning. We thank you for giving us an opportunity to gather together once again and just to continue the study of First Peter. I pray, Lord, that as we are here today, uh, you would just give us an understanding of what your word says and the importance of it, how we can apply these truths to our lives and see that uh, your word has application for both the temporal and the eternal, that it helps us to have the right perspective, uh, to maintain joy, to have clarity in a world that is filled with confusion. And so I pray that we will just be blessed by it this morning and that uh, you will be glorified in us as we uh, take in your word and then apply it to our lives. We thank you and we praise you in Christ's name. Amen. All right, let's begin in verse 1, just as we go back by way of review. It says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. May grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, 
to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your soul. So as we look at uh, 1 Peter 1.6 this morning, we're looking at the whole idea of having joy while you are experiencing trials, experiencing those times of distress. You know, when we are uh, talking to others who do not know Christ, or maybe even someone who's a believer, but maybe they're not uh, as knowledgeable about certain things in Scripture, when we're talking about uh, our life in Christ and the faith that we have and the joy that we are to maintain, uh, many people will see that as kind of irrational or illogical. They'll look at everything that's happening around, uh, whether it is um, you know, the, the situation we've had for almost a year and a half now, whether it's uh, medical issues or it's uh, financial or, or whatever it might be, the freedoms that we you know, have come to know and love and expect and sometimes demand when those are threatened or taken away. Uh, often, as Christians, when we maintain that joy, uh, it doesn't make sense to the unbeliever. They think, how can you look at this? How can you experience this and, and still be that happy, still be you know, okay with that? And uh, it doesn't make sense to the unbeliever because they don't have the Spirit of God in them. They don't understand the Word of God as we do. Uh, so for many, many people in the world, the Christian life is really something that is irrational and illogical. Uh, but when we look at, at 1 Peter 1.6, um, Peter says that, no, you need to do exactly what the world would find as irrational and illogical. You need to have great joy, not just joy, but great joy. And there's great joy that you have, you greatly rejoice when? In times of distress, in times of trials. And, and so as we look at this, uh, it really does kind of parallel what we know from James. Look at James chapter 1, uh, verse 2, probably a, a verse I'm sure many of us are familiar with. James 1, verse 2 says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Uh, we know verse 3 goes on and says, Knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, so there's definitely a purpose in it. And let endurance have its perfect results, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And so here, whether we read it in James or we read it in Peter, the Christian is to maintain joy when they are in the midst of trials. And so this is not something that is uh, new. It's not something that is exclusive only to Peter's audience. This is something that we as Christians should have at all times, regardless of our situations. And, and so when you ask the question, how can we consider it all joy? How can we have great joy or, or to rejoice greatly when we are in a situation of distress, a situation of, of trial or persecution or, or whatever it might be? Well, the answer really is found in the promises that we have in Jesus Christ, the salvation promises, the blessings that we have. 
the blessings that we have that we experience now in our temporal lives and those blessings that we know that are promised that are coming in the eternal. And so when we have the right perspective of the, the here and now and then the then, the temporal and the eternal, then it really makes everything around us kind of seem insignificant. And when I say insignificant, that doesn't mean that we should ever minimize what people are going through, whether it's just the trials of life or it's a spiritual trial. We don't want to make people uh, think as if we are, are not uh, concerned or compassionate you know, with what they're going through and, and at times what we're going through. But the reality is, is when we, when we study passages like First Peter and James and others, we see really that the trials that we experience, they are temporal. They are temporary. They're, they're not just happening here in this world, but they don't last forever. And when you're looking at the perspective of, of eternity, it's a very small amount of time that they actually take place, that they actually cause you distress. It doesn't last forever. And that's the, the understanding here, is that even though here and now I might experience hardship, I might experience direct persecution because of my faith in Christ, that doesn't last forever. This is not, this is not a, a um, foreshadowing of what my eternity is going to be like. My eternity is going to be blessed. My eternity is going to be glorious. There are so many things that we know we have now and that we can rejoice about, but there's so much more to come that we know are promised by the Word of God and will be fulfilled by the power of God, but they're not yet experienced. And so we have that living hope that these things are going to take place. And so being able to see the here and now and then the future through the Word of God, we have that great joy. You know, look at some passages here. Think about Mary and Paul and Silas and then the Philippian jailer and, and the Christians in Thessalonica. Look at what the Word of God says about their attitudes of joy. Look at Luke 1.46 and we'll see what Mary says as she is uh, being told she's going to give birth to the Messiah. <clears throat> After uh, Mary has been visited by Gabriel and then she visits Elizabeth in her Magnificat, she says here, it says, And Mary said, My soul exalts the Lord. My spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. For he has regard for the humble state of his bondslave. For behold, from this time on, uh, on, all generations will count me blessed. And then she goes on to talk about the great things that God has done. She says, I'm so blessed to be chosen by God. I rejoice in God because he is my great savior. He, he's had regard for me, the humble bond slave. And because of what God is doing for me, not only am I blessed now, but in generations to come, people are going to... Bless me. Well, let's turn off this here. There we go. They will count me blessed. Uh, and so she understands what God is doing at that moment in time. And because of his salvific plan, she understands that people for generations are going to understand what God has done through her. And she greatly rejoices in her Savior. Uh, look at Paul and Silas, Acts chapter 16. In Mary's situation, we might look at that and say, well, of course she's going to rejoice. She's just been chosen out of all of humanity to, to bear the Messiah. Why wouldn't she rejoice? Well, 
Think about the, the kind of burden that comes with that. I mean, remember, she was an unmarried woman at the time. There was going to be that, that uh, shame that would go around, you know, from the, the people who knew her, the, the talk about, you know, is, was she unfaithful before marriage? And is this Joseph's son? I mean, there was all of that that was going to take place. And so uh, this really wasn't the ideal situation for a young unmarried woman to now say, you know, she's with child. So there was going to be other difficulties. But certainly she knew it was a blessed calling by God. Uh, Acts chapter 16. Look at verses 23 through 25. Well, let's look at verse two, uh, 22. The crowd rose up together against them, and the chief magistrates tore their robes off them and proceeded to order them to be beaten with rods. So here we see the servants of God who are brought to, before the magistrates, and they are, are stripped and beaten. And you look at verse 23, when they had struck them with many blows, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to guard them securely. And he, having received such a command, threw them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. But about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Here they are attacked by the mob, they're brought before the magistrates, their, their, their clothing is torn off, they're beaten, they're thrown into the inner prison, and what are they doing? They're singing songs of praise. They're rejoicing greatly, even though they had just been physically beaten because they are servants of Christ. Look at uh, the Philippian jailer, uh, Acts 16.34. This is after the earthquake freed them, the jailers converted. We see in verse 31, they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. They spoke the word of the Lord to him together with all those who were in his house. He took them that very hour of the night and washed their wounds. And immediately he was baptized, he and all his household. He brought them into the house and set food before them and rejoiced greatly, having believed in God with his whole household. Here is a man who just, you know, maybe minutes or hours before, was ready to kill himself because the prisoners, he was thinking they had escaped and that was his watch. They stop him. They preach the gospel. He's saved. And now he's rejoicing greatly. I mean, what a tremendous contrast in his mentality. At one, one moment, he's ready to take his life. The next moment, he's rejoicing not only... Uh, you know, with those who were saved, but because he had been saved. I mean, this is a, a tremendous testimony of the kind of joy that the salvation we have in Christ brings. Look at uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 6. Paul here is giving thanks uh, to God for his brethren in Thessalonica. We see verse 2, he's making mention of them in his prayers. He constantly bears in mind their work of faith, labor of love, steadfastness and hope uh, in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of God, our, our God and Father. Knowing, brethren, beloved by God, his choice of you. This is very similar to what he says, uh, what Peter says in 1 Peter 1. Our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and the Holy Spirit with full conviction. Just as you know what kind of men we proved among you for your sake, you also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit. I mean, it, it would be one thing to receive the word with great joy when everything's going well. 
God saves you, your family's doing well financially, everyone's healthy, the kids are behaving, the marriage is great, of course you're going to rejoice. But they receive it with the joy of the Holy Spirit when? In much tribulation. And then you look at verse 7, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. So here their experience of salvation produced the joy and it produced the... the, the um, um, forgetting the word here that I was going to say, the, the expression of that salvation. So they experience it, they're joyful, and then it, it is expressed by the way that they live, and they become examples. So you see, the Bible is full of examples of those who have joy in the midst of distress. Look at one more as we finish up this opening section. Look at Romans chapter 8, verse 18, and see... Uh, another passage where Paul speaks about this temporal and eternal. Romans 8.18 says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And so he says, What we are experiencing right now is nothing compared to what is to come. This is just a taste of what is to come. There is so much more waiting for us and so we're not going to allow this world to bring us down. We're not going to allow these trials and these persecutions, these hardships, these difficulties, these distresses to, to rob us of our joy because we know what is coming and it cannot compare with what we experience here. So that brings us back to 1 Peter. Go back to 1 Peter chapter 1. Peter David says this, The tests or trials mentioned in any of these passages are not those that are common lot of all humanity, and certainly not illness, but those that result from the person's commitment to Jesus. These might be the pains of direct persecution, or they might be the struggles of Christian service. Certainly this was the experience of the Christians to whom our letter is addressed. So when we're talking about these trials in 1 Peter, Specifically in chapter 1, verse 6, we're not talking about just the difficulties of living in a fallen world. Unbelievers experience those things as well. Illnesses and, and, and financial difficulties and death and, and relationship issues and, and all sorts of distresses, losing a job, losing a home. I mean, these are things that everyone experiences, regardless of whether you are a committed believer in Christ or you are a hardened atheist. We're not talking about the everyday trials of life. What we're talking about here is when you are suffering for the name of Christ, when you are being persecuted, when you're in the midst of trials because of your commitment to Christ, because of your, your, your association with Christ as his disciple. And so this is completely different than just the general struggles of a fallen world. This has to do with what you experience because of your commitment to Jesus. And so let's take a look here at the rationality of our joy. Why is this joy not irrational and illogical, but very rational? We can say that because when we understand God's word, we see the foundation for that joy. And we see that that foundation is the catalyst. This is why we have this kind of joy. So as we look here, Peter goes on. He's giving thanks for his brethren. He's making a transition here from uh, verses 1 through 5 to verse 6. And there's a, a great connection between the two. Uh, and so in this, verse 6, uh, it's this relative clause that really links together everything that Peter said in verses 1 through 5. 
And so if we take one through five, we read those earlier, so I'm not gonna go back and, and read it again, but I've kind of summarized it here. If you look at the middle of this paragraph, uh, Peter says here, as we just kind of remind ourselves what he mentioned, the promises in verses one through five include these things. Verse one, being chosen by God. Verse two, being foreknown or foreloved by God. Again in verse two, being sanctified, being set apart by the Holy Spirit in our position and our practice. Verse two, being recipients of grace uh, from God and peace with God. Verse three, being born again or regenerated. Verse three, um, verse four actually, no I'm sorry, verse three, possessors of a living hope. Verse four, heirs to a guaranteed eternal heavenly inheritance. Verse five, our souls are protected by the power of God. And again in verse five, we look forward to the future culmination of salvation when Christ returns. All of these things, Peter says, in this, in these things, you greatly rejoice. In all the promises that he just mentioned in verses 1 through 5, in this you rejoice. Even though you suffer, even though you're distressed, here's the reason why our joy is rational. Look at the building blocks, look at the foundation of our joy. Chosen by God, foreknown by God, foreloved by God, sanctified by God. Uh, we are, are receiving grace and peace and we're born again. We have living hope. We have an eternal inheritance. Our souls are protected by the power of God until the end. Those are the building blocks, the foundation of our joy. And all of that is the catalyst. That produces the joy. We know what it's built upon and that produces the great joy and the attitude that we have. So for the Christian, it's a very rational joy. Because when we read the Word of God, we understand that His Word is without error. It's infallible, it's inspired, it's inerrant, it is authoritative. We can look at it and say, the Word of God is truth. And if God's Word says, these promises are mine, some experienced now and some experienced in the future, then this is why I can have joy. Because I know these things to be true. Our God does not lie. There's no shifting of shadows in our God. He doesn't change his mind. There is no plan B. There's no contingency plan. Everything he desires, everything he declares will happen. And that includes our salvation. That includes our glorification. So when you have the Spirit in you and you have the Word of God before you, your joy is very rational. It makes sense to maintain joy when you understand the promises that are in God's word for the believer. We are not these mindless sheep that are blindly following a God that we've made in our own image. And that certainly is what many people in the world believe. We are informed through God's word of what he has done for us now and in the future. And because of who he is, he does not change, he does not lie, these promises are guaranteed. And so we can look at that and say, this is why I can have joy. And not just joy, but great joy. Joy inexpressible. Look at the intensity, the second section here. It's not just joy, but Peter uses uh, th this term for joy. It's not the common term, okay? He uses a word, um, agaliaste, which is meaning an exuberant joy. It's not just joy, but it's like joy on steroids. I mean, if we were to use kind of a common phrase. 
You know, if we're looking at an upgrade, it's like joy 2.0. I mean, whatever you want to use, I mean, this is great joy, exceeding joy. This is like joy on top of joy. Okay? And, and there is certainly an emphasis there. And, and so as we look at this intensity of joy, it's interesting because this term was not used in secular Greek writing. It was something that was reserved for, for religious terminology. And so when we look at this, this is something where you look at it as a, as, a, as a person who has faith in God, we say this is a joy that the world can't give. This is a joy that doesn't exist in the secular world. This joy upon joy, this exceeding joy, is something that we use to describe the promises of God, the blessings of God. And Peter uses this term three times in 1 Peter. We see 1.6, he says that we are to greatly rejoice. Uh, 1.8, it says that we rejoice with joy inexpressible. You really cannot express the kind of joy that you have in Jesus Christ. It's beyond comprehension. It's beyond explanation. And then we see in 1, uh, 1 Peter 4, verse 13, that we are to keep on rejoicing. This is this pattern of ongoing rejoicing. The joy, the rejoicing never stops. It continues throughout our Christian lives. And so it really is a running theme through 1 Peter. You know, it's, it's very likely that Peter was thinking of the teaching of Christ in Matthew chapter 5, verse 12. This is during what is known as the Sermon on the Mount and where Christ is speaking of what we know as the Beatitudes. Matthew chapter 5, verse 12 says, Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So as Jesus is giving all of these blessings, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the gentle, blessed are those who hunger and thirst, for righteousness, blessed are the merciful, blessed are the pure in heart, blessed are the peacemakers, blessed are those who've been persecuted for the sake of righteousness. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you, say all kinds of evil things against you. It's false. In all of this, what? Rejoice and be glad. Because you're blessed. And Peter was there when Christ was teaching this. So what Peter is teaching in 1 Peter 1 to his brethren who were scattered, he's teaching what Christ taught him. This is part of the Great Commission. You, you go out, you make disciples, you teach them to observe all that I commanded you. This is what Peter is doing. He's telling his brethren, this is why we have great joy. And our joy needs to be this intense joy, this joy inexpressible. You know, when, when we understand what we have in Christ, who we are in Christ, what is coming for us in glory, uh, when we have the right, uh, the right attitude between the temporal and the eternal, it produces the proper perspective. It gives us the right mindset. It gives us that spiritual 2020 vision, clarity, where we can look at this world that is falling apart, we can look at all the chaos that is, is continuing to grow in our world every day. It's like this exponential growth of, of chaos and depravity and, and just this downward spiral of hopelessness. And we can look at all of that and say, I have joy in Christ. Why? Because I know who he is. I know who I am. I know what's in store for those who are his. And, and, and my joy is not going to be destroyed by these temporal trials and periods of persecution. 
I simply will not allow that because I know who God is and what he has given to me. Look at the next page. Look at the brevity of our distress. So we go from the joy to the distress now. We know that our joy is rational. Our joy should be intense. But look at the distress now. The distress doesn't last forever. It's a brief amount of time. Okay? If we desire to live in this world and, and we want to make sure we don't fall into periods of anxiety or fear, again, we need to know the temporal and the eternal, the distinction there, the contrast of the two. They are not the same. What we experience here and now is momentary. It's not very long. You know, when we were at the retreat this weekend, the speaker was talking about uh, redeeming the time, making the most of your time. I believe he said that he was um, in his mid-70s. And he was saying, I don't know how much time I have left. Maybe I have five years. Maybe I have 10 years. You know, if the Lord's gracious, maybe I have 15 years. Uh, he says, my, my life now is at the tail end. So he was exhorting all the men there, look, you're younger than me, and, and barring any sort of tragedy, and you're going to live out in a life and kind of, you know, into your 70s or 80s, you still have decades. You need to think about the time God's given you, because even 70 or 80 years, 90 years, 100 years on earth is a drop in the bucket compared to eternity. We might look at, at our lives and say, man, to, to live to be 100 years old, that's old, that's a long time. Well, by human standards, it is. If we're measuring it on our timeline, it is. But if you're looking at eternity, it's nothing. And, and so when we think about, okay, you know, it's, it's kind of like I was thinking with our children. Uh, when we would take them to the doctors, we would take them to the dentist. Is it going to hurt? Yeah, it's going to hurt a little bit. It might hurt a lot, but it's not going to last forever. And they're doing this to help you. In the end, the pain for that short amount of time is going to help you heal. And we would tell them. We wouldn't lie to them. I remember one time uh, our, our second oldest, Timothy, was in the playground. I think he was, I don't know. Remember how old Timothy was when he split his cheek open? In second, third grade, he was out in the playground and somebody, I think a little girl, like kind of hit him and sunk her teeth into his cheek. So it's split open. So I had to take him to the, the hospital. And uh, as we were going, he's like, what are they going to do? I'm like, they're going to give you stitches. Is it going to hurt? Yeah. Like, and they're going to give you a shot too. They're probably going to give you a shot right inside that cut to numb it before they give you stitches. And he was like, oh. I'm like, but they have to do it. I said, the, the shot is going to hurt, but after that, you're not going to feel the pain. You might feel some tugging, but it's going to make it easier to tolerate. I'm telling you, he was a trooper. He was scared. I was holding his hand. You could see him. He was like, Ugh. and he was kind of looking at that needle coming, but he took it like a champ. And after that, he was like, that wasn't so bad. <laughs> it wasn't so bad. Now, unlike his father, I had to get stitches in my knee when I was in fourth grade. I was in the playground running, and I split my knee open, and I had to go get stitches. So I, I told the doctor, uh, can I use the bathroom first? He said, sure. So I went in the bathroom and locked myself in there. And about 20 minutes later, four or five nurses and the doctor finally got me out of the bathroom. And then after all of that, I was like, well, that wasn't so bad. <laughs> Tim took it like a champ. I ran and hid in the bathroom. The point is this, though, that the, the temporary pain is necessary because the long-term outcome is what's going to benefit you. 
And so when you're looking here, the brevity of our distress, we need to remember that. It's temporal, but it is necessary. It hurts for a while, it lasts for a while, but in the, in the, the perspective of, of, of time, it's not much at all. When you're looking at these terms together, it's oligon RT is the, the Greek, uh, um, the two words there. And those terms used together, they emphasize the short duration of the present distress would compare to all the glories of eternity which are to follow. They're telling you this is not a long time. This isn't going to last forever when you think about eternity. The temporal trials that we face, they're, they're transitory. They pass away quickly. It might not feel like it's passing quickly because sometimes the trials can last for days or weeks or months or years. But when you have the eternal perspective, that's not very long. And when we know there's a purpose as we get into the next section, the necessity of our distress, that makes it all the easier to tolerate, to endure, and not just tolerate and endure, but to do it with joy. Because you know that God is not going to allow something to happen that does not have a purpose that will ultimately result in glorifying Him. Everything He does, everything He allows, will ultimately bring glory to God. And if we believe that God does what is good for His people and for the glory of His name, then even your distress, even your trials, somehow fit in to God's plan of bringing glory to Himself and growth to you. So we can look at those temporal things and say, it's painful, it's uncomfortable, I'd rather not have it, but I trust God, and I know this isn't going to last forever. And in the end, there's a benefit. There's glory to Him and there's growth to me. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17. We'll see what Paul says here about the temporal and the eternal. 2 Corinthians 4, 17. We'll actually start in verse 16. Therefore we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. It's very interesting. Look at, look at how he describes the, 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 the outer man decaying and what's happening in the temporal. He calls them momentary light afflictions. He says they don't last forever and they're not that weighty. It's a bit of an inconvenience is kind of what he's saying. But look at the contrast. The momentary light afflictions, what do they produce? An eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. You talk about contrast. What is experiencing, what you're experiencing right now is lightweight, kind of a petty thing, not all that big a deal. But what it produces is this tremendous glory that you can't even comprehend. The momentary light afflictions ultimately result in the eternal weight of glory. And you have no idea how much blessing God has in store for you. This is nothing compared to this. He says, if we're looking at all of this, what we can see, and if we're basing our lives and our mindset, our worldview, our joy on this, we're basing it on something that is temporary and free. It's, it's just, 
It's not going to last. And it will fail us. There's no doubt about that. Everything that is temporal will fail us. Whether it's our homes, our jobs, our, our health, our, our, uh, our families. And even if we have the best Christian families, well, guess what? They don't live forever. Everything in this world is going to be taken from us. What is not going to be taken from us? The blessings of glory, the blessings of eternity, the inheritance that is reserved in heaven by the power of God. That's what Peter says in verses 1 through 5. So we see here, it's, just, it's, it's a very brief amount of time. Wayne Grudem says this, Peter thus shows simultaneous grief and joy to be normal in the Christian life. Grief arises because of many difficulties encountered in this fallen world, but faith looks to the unseen reality beyond this present brief existence and rejoices. We look at beyond. We look at what's on, coming on the horizon. We don't just focus on what's here. We look at what's ahead. That's pressing on to the mark of the high calling of Christ Jesus. That's how we run the race with endurance, because we're looking at the finish line. We're not just looking at what is here. We're looking at what is to come. Look at the necessity of our distress. Go back to 1 Peter 1. We're familiar with Romans 8.28, I'm sure. God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and to those who are called according to his purpose. A verse that many Christians like to quote, but I think many Christians don't comprehend what it really means. Right? It's not just the good things that work together for good. It's also the bad things. It's also the trials. It's also the distresses. It's also the persecution. Those things also work for the glory of God and, the, and for the good of his people. And so when you look at verse 6, in this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while the brevity, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials. So if necessary, it's, it's a first-class conditional clause. So there's, there's four different conditional clauses in Greek. The first-class clause, it, it's saying that these things could happen, but they're not guaranteed. They're not universal and they're not guaranteed. So what it means is that some of you are going to experience trials. Not all of you, but some, and they're not going to last forever, and they're not universal. You don't all experience the same things. I mean, if I were to say today, okay, after service, we are all going to have lunch. We're not, so I'm not promising that. But we're all going to have lunch, and we're all having pizza and salad. That's what you're getting. We're all going to have it. Not a buffet. This is what you get. Now, if we had a buffet, we'd say, we're all going to eat of this. Some of you might have pizza, some of you might have chicken, some of you might have salad, some of you might have this. Okay? So this, this is clause is saying, if necessary, some of you, some of us are going to experience it. And even if we all do, they're not all going to be the same trials. They vary. And we're going to talk about that, that variation when we look at the diversity of distress. But the point here is that, that as we look at these necessary trials, uh, Robert Thomas uh, defines it this way. He says that these, these, these trials come from this first-class conditional clause of description, which does not state that the trials that Peter's brethren were facing were or are universal and inevitable, but spasmodic and occur when God finds them necessary. Okay? Sometimes they happen. Sometimes there's a, a period of peace. But when they do happen... Understand this, they are part of God's plan. God will allow them or ordain them or, or, or bring them, and he does that for a purpose. 
So we need to understand that. He will use and allow and ordain various trials to come upon his people for a greater purpose. The, the temporal, uh, greater purpose than just the temporal earthly comfort. He will bring or allow distress to come upon his people. Now that confuses many Christians. Well, God would never do anything that causes me distress. Really? Did God allow Joseph to be cast into the pit and sold into slavery and then falsely accused by Potiphar's wife? Yeah, why? Because in Genesis 50-20, you meant this for evil, but God meant it for what? For good. So that the entire nation and others beyond the nation of Egypt would be preserved from what? Famine and death. So Joseph understood all the difficulties that I've experienced. In the end, God meant good to come from it. You think of uh, Peter, Luke chapter 22, verse 31. Jesus tells him that, that Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. Now we look at that, well, God would never let Satan touch any of his people. Really? Jesus tells Peter, but I've prayed for you. He doesn't say, I've rebuked Satan, I cast Satan, I bound Satan, I, I, you know, I, 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 I won't allow Satan to touch you. He says, no, I prayed for you. Why? Because you're going to go through it. In fact, he says, when you've come through it, strengthen your brethren. Meaning, Peter, Satan's demanded permission, and guess what? Permission granted. But I've prayed for you. You're going through it, and you're going to make it through. Why? Because I'm not going to let you fall. Is it going to be difficult? Yes. Is it going to be uncomfortable? Yes. Is it going to be a direct attack by Satan? Yes. But in the end, you're going to be better off than you were before the sifting. We'll come back to that in just a bit. You think of Paul's thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan, to torment him, to buffet him. There's different ideas as to what that thorn of the flesh was. Some say it was a medical issue. Some say it was a human antagonist. Some say it was a spiritual antagonist. Whatever it was, Paul begged the Lord, entreated him three times to remove it. But it wasn't taken. Why? It was there because it was necessary to keep Paul humble, to keep him from exalting himself. To keep Paul humble glorifies God. To keep Paul humble teaches Paul something about who he is and how he should think about himself. So when we're going through these trials, we need to understand sometimes they're necessary. And God is never caught off guard. It's, they come with his full knowledge, his permission, and the greater purpose. You know, go back to the idea. Look at the, the, the end of this paragraph here. And, and let me finish up Luke 22. Jesus tells Peter, I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And you, when once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Now, when you look at this, I mean, you look at the book of Acts, Peter is not the same man who denied Christ three times. He's a changed man. When you look at the book of Acts, the book of Acts follows two human main characters, Peter and Paul. We know the main character of Acts is the Holy Spirit, the main focus. But humanly speaking, you have one of the twelve, Peter, and then you have Paul. And you look at, you know, Peter wasn't perfect. He had to be you know, corrected. But you look at Peter compared to who he was prior to this sifting. He's a different guy. He's a bold preacher. 
And when you look at him strengthening his brethren, what do you think the letter of 1 Peter is? He is strengthening and encouraging his brethren who are scattered and experiencing persecution. He could say, I know distress, I know attack, I know persecution, I was sifted by Satan. He doesn't say that, but we know that he was. And so here he is encouraging his brethren. Hey, don't lose hope. Don't lose heart. We have a living hope. Greatly rejoice. Why? Because look at all that we have in store beyond this fallen sinful world. Don't let these things bring you down. MacArthur says here, rather than allow severe trials and persecutions to steal their joy and spoil their anticipation of future blessing in heaven, genuine believers with a biblical perspective know that such sufferings actually can add to their joy as they experience grace and anticipate the future. Now, I don't think that we would say any Christian has kind of a, a death wish or a persecution wish. Yeah, bring it on. I want to be persecuted more and more and more. But we understand there's a purpose in it. We understand we're not going to lose hope. We're not going to lose faith. Because in the end, there is a greater blessing. And God is glorified as we go through that. One last thing as we wrap it up here, the diversity of distress. Maybe you've heard people say that trouble comes in all shapes and sizes. Well, Peter says the same thing in verse 6. If necessary, you've been distressed by various trials. And various here means like various colors are variegated. It's the idea of kind of this multicolored tapestry of distress, if you will. We've heard about Joseph's multicolored tunic. Well, here, if you're thinking of a spiritual fabric, some kind of spiritual uh, pattern here, uh, the distresses, the trials comes in all shapes and colors and sizes. That's what Peter is saying. Uh, the Christian, we should think of these various trials, as I said, as a tapestry of distress and trouble. Uh, something James said, we saw that earlier in James chapter 1, verse 2. All right, consider it all joy when you encounter various trials. They come in, in different ways and at different times. Now, now, the idea here is that even though we experience various trials, the idea is not that the trials will be great in number, but that they come in many aspects and appearances. That doesn't mean every Christian is going to be bombarded with wave after wave after wave of trial. What it means is there's different types of trials, but they're all connected to being a believer in Jesus Christ. For some people, it's being ostracized by family. For some people, it's losing a job. For some people, it's political persecution. It's imprisonment. It's beating. There's different ways that we are are tried and tested and persecuted because of our faith. And so there are various trials. Again, living in this world, we're not talking about the common trials of life. We're not talking about illness. We're not talking about losing a home or, or, or having someone in your family die of, of, of a, a injury or illness or whatever it might be. We're talking about the, the, the trials that are connected directly to you as a believer in Jesus Christ because of your faith because of your commitment to him, because of being a disciple of Christ. These are the various trials that come. And so we understand here that, that our commitment to Christ, uh, it, it, it should be with the right focus, the perspective. I'm going to be opposed by this world because of who I am in Christ. And when I am, I maintain my joy, great joy, exceeding joy, joy inexpressible. Why? Because I know who I am in Christ. I know what he's given to me and I know what's in store. And this world can't take that away. And so I'm not going to lose my joy. 
Look here at uh, the bottom quote. This comes from uh, Table Talk magazine. It's a publication by Ligonier. Trials will come and grieve us, though it will only be for a little while. They will not last forever. Even if we suffer our entire lives, that period of time cannot be compared with the eternal joy that we shall experience when Christ consummates his kingdom. So we need to keep the right perspective. It's always the, the, the uh, eternal is greater than the temporal. And if we have that mentality, we will maintain our joy amid distress. Let me close in prayer and then we'll take a short break before we go into our morning service. Father, we come before you. We thank you so much for this morning. Thank you for this opportunity to continue our study in 1 Peter. And we just thank you for your word because it is so clear. It is so powerful. And I pray that as we've learned this morning that we will, will strive to maintain that joy. That we will be uh, good students of your word. And we will understand that to know the doctrines, the teachings of Scripture, it's not just this academic endeavor. It, it really changes the way that we think, changes the way that we live, and, and it changes our attitudes, our emotions. And so we pray, Lord, that we will truly just feast on your word and cling to the promises so that we can live joyfully in this world and not lose hope, not lose our faith. Father, I pray as we go into our service this morning that you will just bless Pastor Scott and and just use him mightily, Lord, to bring your word to us and help us to be good listeners and hearers and doers of the word so that we can glorify you and see growth in our lives and be salt and light in this very dark and wicked world. We thank and we praise you in Christ's name.